God is good. All the time. You may wonder why we made the video about the renovation campaign. Why we made a video instead of having Alan talk live. Well, the reason was because we knew Ohio State and Notre Dame were playing yesterday. <laughs> and in the case that Notre Dame would have won, Alan would have been too despondent to speak. So we thought we better grab the video while we could. As it turns out, things would have been just fine. Welcome to week three of Jesus of Nazareth, or as he would have been called in the Aramaic of his day, Yeshua Nazareth. Keep in mind, Jesus would have spoken Aramaic. People wrote in Greek. So you spoke one language, you wrote in another. In the series, we're probing the Sermon on the Mount. My purpose in presenting this material is because we live in an age of Jesus gets us. He gets us. And he does. But my concern is that we're not getting Jesus at all. Jesus came to set the captive free. And for captives of sin to enter into freedom, they're going to have to learn to think differently. You see, a lot of times we get thinking of discipleship in changing what we do. But Jesus went deeper than that. He went to the very source of what we do. Our motive. How we think. Many people today reject God and the teachings of the Bible in the name of freedom. They want to do what they want when they want. In reality, they're not doing what they want at all. They're doing what sin wants. And what sin wants is to destroy them. You see, a lot of people today have traded freedom from sin to become a captive to sin, all in the name of freedom. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus exposed this kind of convoluted thinking over and over. And that's why when people got done listening to Jesus, they either bowed down and call him Lord, or they screamed crucify him, because Jesus does not leave us middle ground. And I think one of the real misnomers of our current age is this idea that there is middle ground with Jesus. There simply isn't. Jesus hailed from a small inland village called Nazareth in the Galilee region of first century Israel. He later locates to lakeside Capernaum for his three ministry years. Jesus is a Galilean. Galileans were working class people, mostly Jewish and if you don't get something of Galilee, you'll miss the nuances of Jesus' teachings. Upon launching a ministry, more or less at the age of 30, Jesus was followed by the sick, the demon-possessed, prostitutes and pariahs, zealots and malcontents. Why did these people follow Jesus? And the answer is really simple, because Jesus gave them their lives back. No one else could do it. When the doctors couldn't help you, you went to Jesus. When those things inside your head threatened to overwhelm you, you went to Jesus. When there was nowhere else to turn, you went to Jesus. He gave people their lives back. His disenfranchised followers were the sort of folks of which revolutions are made. And that made Yeshua Nazareth dangerous. Jesus was a threat to the status quo. 
And his talk about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven really had revolution written all over it. On a mountainside near the Sea of Galilee, Jesus pulled his disciples apart as the crowd gathers. And he offered instructions on how to minister to desperate people. He began by suggesting that when we are most desperate, we are most blessed of all. In those very worst times in our lives, when our hearts are broken, when we don't know where to turn or to whom to turn. Jesus said those are the best times in your life. Because in those times you are acutely aware of your need for God. And any day you are aware of your need for God, it is a good day. And then Jesus told the disciples, you are salt and you are light. You're the good in this world. And if that good dissipates, there'll be no good at all. And you are the lights that bring people to me. And now the lesson continues. Verse 17. Don't misunderstand why I've come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses and the teachings of the prophets, but to fulfill them. Jesus was born a Jew and died a Jew. Everything in Judaism rests upon the five books of Moses. We call them the Pentateuch. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and the writings of the prophets. This sentence would have shocked Jesus' detractors to the core. Jesus made a career out of breaking religious laws. Jesus made a career out of breaking the Sabbath laws, publicly challenging Jewish religious protocol, and he went out of his way to irritate and even publicly humiliate the Pharisees. You see, Jesus was the kind of guy that if he walked into your church and there was a sign that said no food and drinks in the sanctuary, he would have gone to the cafe and gotten food and drinks and brought them in to the sanctuary. And a lot of you got your warning signs going right now. All your lights are flashing. Jesus wouldn't do that. Well, of course he would. What makes you think so? Read the Gospels. Read the Gospels. Of course he would. And you want to know why your lights are flashing? Because you've been taught your whole life that being a good Christian means you follow the rules. You're not supposed to question. You're not supposed to ask why. You're not supposed to doubt. You are just to follow religion. What is religion? Blind adherence to a preconceived set of notions. That is my definition of religion. So, in a sense, you're to eat what's on your plate. I was told that from the time I was a little boy. Was anybody else raised in the eat what's on your plate world? My mom would make stuff. Sometimes I didn't like it. And I would say, I'm done. And she says, no, you're not done. There's still stuff on your plate. Eat it. And I'd say, mom, I don't like it. And she would remind me there are starving children in other parts of the world. <laughs> and I'd say, is there any way you could box this up and mail it to them? Religion's always going to tell you, eat what's on your plate. Do what you're told. Don't question, don't think, don't doubt. Eat what's on your plate. It's, that is the demand of religion. So now we're left with this question. How could Jesus claim 
to be the, ver- the fulfillment of the very law he seemed to challenge at every opportunity. And now you're going to need to lean in because I'm going to challenge the way you think from the scriptures. In the 400 years between the Old Testament and the New Testament, a movement occurred within Judaism that took the Ten Commandments and expanded them into tens of thousands of rules and regulations. Those who fueled the movement were called scribes, and those who most tried to keep all of these laws were called the Pharisees. By the time you get to Jesus, the contaminant of legalistic and man-made religion had nearly choked the life out of the Jewish faith. And it had left it corrupt, hypocritical, mean-spirited, and self-righteous. I want to suggest that I believe much of what has happened in my lifetime in the American church is that legalistic and man-made religion has choked the life out of the Christian faith. And it has left it corrupt and hypocritical and mean-spirited and self-righteous. It is on this reality that Jesus shoved, not the law of Moses. The religious leaders that Jesus challenged were those more interested in religion, the letter of the law, than having a relationship with God, the purpose of the law. For Yeshua Nazareth, when stone cold and hypocritical religion got in the way of a warm, authentic relationship with God, it became a detriment to faith that needed to be removed. Jesus knew that for his disenfranchised followers to truly discover the goodness of an authentic relationship with God, he was going to have to offend the bad religion right out of them. What's Jesus trying to do in the Sermon on the Mount? Offend the bad religion right out of us. In doing so, he threatened the power base of the religious elite. And frankly, he threatened the social order itself. Was Jesus trying to overthrow Rome? No. Was Jesus a revolutionary? Absolutely. Jesus was the human embodiment of the law of Moses. He was the prophecies of the ancients fulfilled. Verse 18, as long as there is a heaven and an earth, the law will remain until its purpose is achieved. The eternal purpose of the promise made to Abraham, the giving of the Ten Commandments to Moses, the teachings of the prophet, the establishment of the law was to make a way for a human fallen race to be made right with God. The purpose of all of this was to make sinners like us right with a perfect God. And this was fulfilled once and for all. Through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So if you want it in layman's term, Jesus finished what Moses and Abraham and the prophets started. 19 and 20. So if you break the law and lead others in breaking it, you'll be the least in the kingdom. But unless you obey God better than the religious leaders, you won't enter heaven at all. You know, as far as the scribes, And Pharisees were concerned. 
You became right with God by keeping all the rules. You became right with God by keeping all of the regulations of the law. So the idea was the more religious you were, the better you kept the rules. And the better you kept the rules, the more right with God you became. This is how religion thinks. And some of you have been steeped in this way of thinking your whole life. Jesus consistently violated the rules and regulations that stood between people and God. And he led his disciples to break them as well. From the point of view of the religious establishment, Jesus was indicting himself by his own teaching. And that's why Jesus was so controversial. So, why did Jesus consistently place himself in what we would call civil disobedience concerning the law? That is a really fair question. Jesus taught that confusing the demands of religion for a relationship with God will not only leave you empty, self-righteous, and possibly meaner than six species of snakes. It will put you at the back of the line, not the front. John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist movement, noted that the Beatitudes were intrinsically internal. They, they began from an inward spring and they flowed outward. He argued that the piety of the scribes and Pharisees had an external source. Their good deeds and piety did not spring from a loving relationship with God. They were simply done to meet the demands of religion. So coming to church is a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful thing. Giving is a wonderful thing. Volunteering is a wonderful thing. But Jesus said in the best of all circumstances, it is something that springs out from your heart. It is a response to the joy of a relationship. When we start doing this stuff thinking it's going to make us right with God, that's when we get into trouble. You see, doing the right things for the wrong reasons isn't going to get it done with Jesus. We may look at the actions of someone and declare them to be good, and, and they may well be. But God is always going to look at our motives. And one of the things we're going to find in the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus is harder to impress than we are. He's just harder to impress than we are. Jesus reminds us that religion becomes a dangerous thing when it's substituted for a relationship with God. You see, religion, if it's substituted for a relationship with God, is something that can be manipulated and leveraged into human power. Religion has been the excuse for wars and atrocities for millennia. You know, one of the things I'm never going to do is to get up here and try to defend the bloody history of organized religion. But what I'm going to do every single Sunday is tell you about this warm, wonderful, and authentic relationship with God that has been made possible through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. See, if we allow religion to be substituted for our relationship with God, Jesus 
isn't saying it puts you in the back of the line. He's saying it, it puts you out of the line altogether. So, so let me ask two simple questions. And, and this is the whole problem with Yeshua Nazareth. He gets under your skin. I love the old Ricky Skaggs song, Can't Shake Jesus, man. He just gets under your skin. Let me ask you two questions. Do you believe that you are a Christian? That's a fair question to be asked at church, isn't it? Do you believe that you are a Christian? And let me follow it up. If so, what informs you of that conviction? To use a popular analogy that is from sources possibly other than the Bible. If you were standing before the pearly gates and St. Peter was up there asking, why should I let you in? How would you respond? How would you respond? If your response is that you are a sinner who has been forgiven by Christ and saved by faith, things are going to go really well for you. They're going to go really well. But if your response has anything to do with getting out your religious resume and pointing out all the good things you've done for the Lord and the community and the church, you've really fallen into the trap of the Pharisees and the scribes. I mean, if that's your strategy, I'd be happy to loan you my seminary diploma. It's not going to do me any good when I stand before the Lord. The only shot we have is to accept the good news of the salvation brought by Jesus Christ. We can't be good enough for God. We can't be good enough for God. A Christian is something we are. It's not something we do. Now we do things in response to who we are. But you got to make sure you get the cart and the horse in the right order. The horse is having a relationship with God. The cart is things we do in response to that relationship. There's nothing wrong and a lot right with piety and good works and, and service. But if you're looking at them to save you from sin, you're in big trouble. For some of you, excess religious baggage has kept you at the back of the line your whole life. It's been a ceiling. And you go so far in your Christian walk and then you hit the ceiling and you can't break it. You may have been taught that if you're trying to live for God, that things will always go your way. That's false. Now, I will tell you this. If you don't do dumb crap, a lot more good things will happen to you. Can I hear an amen for somebody? I mean, you're not going to blow stuff up everywhere. I mean, that, that's helpful. But I'm going to tell you, just because you live for God doesn't mean everything's going to go your way. You see, this kind of thinking just isn't true. And Jesus said, this kind of belief will land you among the least in the kingdom of heaven. Some of you may have been taught that God will always answer your prayers. The way you want them answered if you just have enough faith. Or if you're just good enough and righteous enough, God will always do what you tell him. That's not true either. And this belief will land you among the least in the kingdom of heaven. This kind of stuff's not good. But if you've been taught that being good and doing good and following the rules equates with a relationship with God, 
Not only is this not true, but Jesus said, this is what will make you miss heaven altogether. Some baggage will slow you down. But if you don't have the right stuff in your backpack, you won't arrive at all. Some years back, I was in England. And I was speaking on evangelism. And I got to go to a church called Swanbank. And I heard a message by Amy Wyatt. And he told this story about her outdoorsman father that I've never forgotten. Through a huge personal tragedy that resulted in the death of his wife, he set about to clear his head. And he went on a hike across northern England. The coast-to-coast trail is called Cotwold's Way. It spans west to east between the Irish Sea and the North Sea. It's, a hundred and mile, it's 190 miles across. It takes about three weeks to a month to complete. And it crosses some pretty difficult terrain. Probably the only thing we would have to compare with that may be the Appalachian Trail. Several days into the journey, uh, Amy stopped hearing from her father. Just wasn't hearing anything at all. She knew he was despondent in the aftermath of his loss. And she began to worry. And then one day, a couple weeks in, she received a parcel in the mail. And when she opened the box, there was no note. None. Only some of her father's dirty shirts, a pair of pants, a pair of shoes, some toiletries, the handle of a toothbrush, a comb that had been snapped into, and some other odds and ends and broken items. It scared her to death. But all she could do was wait. Well, a couple weeks later, her father arrived at her house to pick up his things. And he had this fascinating story. He was about halfway across England. And he realized he had just hit a wall. He could go no further. He's already absolutely despondent because of the tragedy in his life. And now he's about to fail at this too. So he finally just sits down and just is in the midst of a breakdown. A seasoned hiker walked up upon him and he said, hey, thinking of calling it quits? He said, I can't, I can't go on. I just can't go on. So the hiker walks to Amy's father's backpack. He unpacks the entire backpack right in front of him. And he starts making two piles. And he throws some things in one pile And some things in the other pile. And he's intentionally breaking stuff the whole time he's doing so. Upon completion, he took one of the halves, repacked the backpack. And he said simply, your pack was too heavy. You can make it now. Amy's father collected his thoughts. He took the excess baggage and asked a day hiker to box it up. And mail it to his daughter. Load lightened. He actually completed his trip. Jesus knew that desperate people are carrying a heavy load. Some of you are carrying a heavy load today. Your backpack's just too heavy. Some of you may even be wondering if you're going to be able to go on. If that's where you are today, the first thing I want you to know, Jesus said, blessed are you. You are acutely aware of your need for God. Blessed are you. 
as we engage this teaching, I want to encourage you to allow Jesus to look into your backpack, to sort out the things that are necessary to go on from the baggage that's just weighing you down. May I offer three thoughts in, in just lightening your load? Three pastoral pieces of advice, if you will. Number one, toss out the bad religion. It's too heavy. Toss out the bad religion. It's too heavy. Some of you feel God loves you when you're doing well and hates you when you stumble and fall. That is bad religion. God loves you because you are his beloved son and daughter. God loves you when you get it right, and God loves you when you get it wrong. There's nothing you can do to make God love you any more, and there's nothing you can do to make God love you any less. You are loved by God, and you're just going to have to get used to it. I tell people all the time, if you gave this church a million dollars today, God would not love you anymore. I would. But God would not love you anymore. A lot of people think God has failed them. But God can't fail us. God doesn't know how to fail us. God is forever faithful. But our bad religion will fail us eight days a week. I want you to look at where you stored unnecessary religious baggage. And toss it out. And I want to encourage you to lean in. Get engaged in a class or a small group. Join one of these Ping Life studies. Join us at Going Deeper on Wednesday nights at 6.30. As we engage the teachings of Christ, as we apply God's truth through Scripture, God takes things out of our backpacks. He lightens our load. When you finally stop thinking, keep the rules... And you start thinking, get closer to Jesus. Now you're ready to finish strong. Number two, surrender your whole life to Christ. Give him all of that. For some people, it's easier to give God what we do well than the things that embarrass us. And here's what I want you to hear. God wants your whole house, not just the clean rooms. God wants all of you. The Christian walk is filled with points of crises. You start reading the Bible to make your life simpler, it just doesn't happen. You run into crises on a near constant basis where you have to obey God or reject God. Some of you have hit the wall in your spiritual development because you're unwilling to part with sinful things in your life that you don't need. You've had the same way too heavy stuff in your backpack for years and you will not part with it. And you've convinced yourself that you're free. But anyone can see that sin is holding you captive. And if you just take a step back and look at your life, you will see that sin has damaged you and it's damaged the people around you. It's something that needs out of your backpack. Offload the sin. Lean into God's power to exit sin's jail cell and surrender your whole life to Christ. There is victory available to you in the name of Jesus, but that victory comes after surrender. Give it all to God, and the victory comes next. Stop thinking, try harder to do better. It's a loser's play. And start thinking, surrender everything to Jesus. Number three, stop trying to avoid God. Stop trying to avoid God. You know, I've talked to people in the past 
who went to church here. God convicted them of something in their life and they wouldn't let it go. And they loved that sinful, dreadful thing so much they let it get between them and God. And before long they stopped going to church altogether. And guess what they told me? They would drive miles not to have to drive by this church. Because every time they drove by this church it reminded them of the sin they still had in their lives. Stop trying to avoid God. Stop trying to avoid God. Jesus' frustration with the religious leaders was that they were paying great attention to religious things and they were ignoring relational things. Oh, they wouldn't dream of failing to rest on the Sabbath or eating a hot dog. But they were taking advantage of the poor and they were cross-threaded in their relationships with their neighbors. And in response to this, Jesus actually uses a little sarcasm. And this is going to be a great joy for those of you who deep in your heart know that sarcasm is your primary spiritual gift. (laughs) Jesus called it straining gnats and swallowing camels. Stop straining gnats and swallowing camels. These religious people allowed obedience to God in small areas of their life to justify disobedience in greater areas. Just because you come to church on Sunday does not justify disobedience and sin in other areas of your life. As we engage in the teachings of Jesus, we're exposed. He just calls us out. And what Jesus is really saying here, stop using religion to avoid God. You say, well, I got all kinds of issues with religion. Jesus had all kinds of issues with religion. Dump the baggage and move on. Anytime we start trying to act like that we can justify having a life where we serve ourselves and not serve God, Jesus will always call us out. He'll never have any of it. I want to ask a question as I close. What one heavy and unnecessary thing needs unloaded from your backpack today? What one thing? You say, I got all kinds of things. Stop it. Stop it. Stop using the fact you got all kinds of problems to justify not dealing with one. What is the one thing that needs to be out of your backpack right now? The one thing that you know is sin. The one thing maybe God has asked you to do that you refuse to do. What is that one thing that needs to be unloaded from your backpack? Is it excess religion? Is it sin with which you're unwilling to part? Oh, I got a good one. Might be those religious games you've been playing for years to allow you to avoid God. These are the things that will get you a whole lot of nothing. And they'll take you all the way to nowhere. Jesus reminds us that while carrying too much in our backpack may render one least in the kingdom of heaven. Missing what Jesus is saying here will have you missing heaven entirely. The law was established to get sinful people right with God. And that's exactly what Jesus came to do. Jesus did not come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill it. He wants to challenge our stinking thinking and get us aligned with the thinking of the kingdom of God. Would you pray with me?
as our communion stewards come forward. Great and mighty God, thank you for calling us out, for loving us enough to call us out. You see beyond our actions into our motives. You know the games that we play in our head to avoid you. You know the baggage that we've been carrying for years. We know we need to get rid of it. God, thank you for these incredible words of Jesus. Because when we hear these words, we either have to get on our knees and repent of our sin or just storm out, acting all offended. Almighty God, would you speak to us? And as we name that one thing in our life right now, as we name that thing, the one thing that needs to be out of our backpacks, the one thing that most slows us down, the one thing as we name that to you, we just give it to you right now. Jesus, would you reach into our lives and take that thing that we've just given you permission to take? Would you remove it from us as far as the east is from the west? Would you repack our backpacks and send us on? Thank you, dear God, for these gifts of bread and wine. Make them for us the body and blood of Christ, that we might be Christ's body in this world redeemed by his blood. Forgive us of our sin. Forgive us of the things that we do that we shouldn't and the things we shouldn't do that we do and free us for joyful obedience through Jesus Christ our Lord. As we take of these elements, give us strength for this track. Because the terrain can get really difficult. Thank you, Jesus, for offering to pack our bags and to walk with us until the very end. We pray it in your strong name. Amen. You do not have to be a member of Christ Church to receive communion here. You just have to be somebody that wants to follow Jesus. We take communion here by taking a piece of bread and dipping it in the juice. If you would like pre-packaged elements or gluten-free elements, you can get those right here in the middle and Donna would be happy to serve you. We also have stations at both sides of the balcony. Jesus has prepared a table. It's food for hungry and desperate souls like us. I don't know about you, but I plan on taking him up on it. Would you come as the ushers bring you forward?